Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special event, an official side event of the World Food Prize 2020 Borlaug Dialogue on COVID-19 and developing country responses. I'm Rajul Pandya Loge, former Director of Communications and Public Affairs at TIFPRI, and I'm delighted to moderate the side event. This event will address COVID-19 and developing country responses. Our speakers will share perspectives from around the world, especially Africa, south of the Sahara, China, and India. Thank you for joining this special side event, and thank you for those of you who are watching this recording after the event. We are eager to hear from you and to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations. Please submit your questions using the chat box at any time. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at hashtag IFPRILive and post questions on Twitter during the Q&A by using the hashtag AskIFPRI. For our friends from the media, if you have any specific queries or questions, please feel free to contact our media team and their contact details are available at ifpri.org. We have an exciting program lined up for you. And without further ado, I'd like to call on IFPRI's Director General, Yo Swinan, for his introductory remarks. Yo, over to you. Thank you very much, Raju. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody here today with us. Uh, it's a great pleasure, it's a great honor for me to introduce this uh, special event on COVID-19 and developing country responses. It's organized by the International Food Policy Research Institute, and we are very pleased to have a, a wonderful panel here today with experiences, insights from different developing country regions. I don't think I need to introduce to you the importance of COVID-19. COVID-19 has had a vast impact on the health, the well-being, and the food and nutrition security of people around the world. What we also know is that the impacts have been uneven. There is a lot of heterogeneity across the value chains, the food systems. We know that uh, those food systems and value chains where uh, use more densely uh, occupied labor have been hit most. Uh, there's also heterogeneity across social groups. The poor have been more affected than the rich. And this is true, and this is caused by a, a variety of reasons, including that the poor spend most of their income on food and nutrition. They are depending on physical labor to uh, achieve income. So they have to go out of the house. They can't use Zoom and um, other um, uh, electronic ways of communication, of, of working. And of course, they are depending more on labor-dense value chains, as that is a characteristic of how these value chains are in developing countries. There's also a lot of heterogeneity across regions and across countries. Countries have different in the timing of the outbreak. We know that very well with uh, the pandemic starting in China and then gradually uh, spreading across the rest of the world. Countries differ in how they have responded, the policies they have introduced, Countries differ in terms of the impact of the pandemic, in terms of the impact on health, impact on their economies, impact on their food security, and in terms of the recovery process. At IFRI, we have done a lot of work or tried to do a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work on collecting evidence on these issues in order to draw lessons and to come up with the best policy responses and give advice to governments. We have organized a series of events. We have now, I think this is about the 25th event that we are organizing since uh, March. We have more than 45 blogs 
on uh, COVID-19 and food and nutrition security and poverty. And in early August, we launched an ebook which collects a lot of the insights that we have. Important is not just collecting information, data, evidence from uh, the regions, but also to learn from the best experts, the best insights from the regions. And so for that reason, I'm very proud, very happy to present our panel of experts that are here today, which I think is really excellent. They are coming from different regions or basically, or will present insights from uh, their expertise from Africa and Asia, Asia particularly in China and India. So the first speaker is Mahendra Dev. Uh, Mahendra has um, written uh, several blogs for us. A new one is coming out actually on the Indian policy response next week. He is the director of, uh, at the Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research in Mumbai. Then we have Fadal Njame, who is the deputy president of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, Agra, which we're very uh, fortunate to have with us today. The third speaker is Jemima Njuki. Jemima is currently the senior program specialist and coordinator of the growth and economic opportunities for women at the International Development Research Center, IDRC. But I'm, I'm very pleased and very honored that she will soon join IFPRI to become the director for the Africa region at IFPRI. And then finally, we have Schengen Fan. Schengen actually is, I think everybody knows Schengen. He was for 10 years the director general of IFPRI. He's currently a professor in China, and he is also now one of the members of the CGIR system board. And uh, Schengen was actually the one who wrote the first uh, blog on COVID-19 and food security back in, I think it was April or early March. It feels like a lifetime away, although it's only uh, eight or nine months. So with that, Rajul, I'm giving the floor back to you. I think I'm really looking forward to this very exciting panel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yo. Thank you for your introductory remarks. Thank you for introducing our wonderful speakers. And um, let me now turn to them uh, and to share their perspectives. And before I do so, I will let everyone know that I'm going to direct two rounds of questions to each of our panelists, and they will have three minutes to answer each question. And following the panel discussion, we will take questions from all of you in the audience. So please do get ready to submit your questions in the chat box or through Twitter. So let me begin with Mahendra. Mahendra, could you briefly talk about what is the impact of COVID-19 in India and the overall response of the Indian government to COVID-19? Over to you, Mahendra. Yeah. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Rajul. And also thank you for inviting me to a free uh, webinar. So what is the uh, impact on India? Uh, impact is more on urban informal workers, although virus is spreading uh, to rural areas now. Uh, the, particularly about 80 million migrant workers are the worst affected. Uh, it had uh, more impact on women. Uh, agriculture growth is less affected. Uh, and also we have good monsoons this year. However, there are complete uh, disruptions in uh, supply chains and food systems that affected uh, crop prices, milk and poultry. Overall, uh, it affected employment, income and food security, the food systems of large population and poverty and inequalities will increase. So this, this is the impact. So what's the response of the government? The central government announced a large package in uh, May 2020 called Atmanirbhar Bharat. That means self-reliant India. This is around uh, $270 billion, forming 10% of GDP. 
The package consists of several transfers, credit, and agriculture market reforms. So the government uh, used uh, this crisis to push through some reforms. Uh, but coming to policy response, there are four policy response relevant to employment, health, and food systems. Uh, more rural focus is given. The first one is safety nets to help the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, in the safety nets, first component is food transfers. So 800 million poor people are given five kilograms of wheat and rice uh, and one kilo kilogram of pulses per person per six months. Later, the same, same package is given to 80 million migrant workers. On nutrition, uh, nutritious food, including one egg, is delivered to children at home. So the second component of safety nets is cash transfers. About 200 million women uh, get 500 rupees per month as cash transfer for three months. And 60% allocation uh, increase in Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Program. And recent, uh, recently, the cash vouchers are also given to employees. That is about the safety nets. Second one, uh, we also increase the investment in health infrastructure, uh, about 2 billion are allocated. And several state governments also increased health expenditures. And the third one is, uh, you know, small and medium enterprises are also affected. So they were given about $40 billion as allocated as collateral free uh, automatic loans. On agriculture, uh, the fourth one, several measures were taken to improve food systems. Uh, agriculture fund, uh, infrastructure fund of 13 billion is being created. Most important on agriculture are the agriculture market reforms which may improve food systems and value chains. I will come to that later. In addition, state governments have taken some measures. Uh, for example, some, some programs of food and nutrition security measures are taken by the uh, Kerala government. And similarly, apart from government, private sector and NGOs also helped in the crisis. To conclude, these measures may compensate to some extent the loss of employment, food, and nutrition and improve food systems and uh, the value chains, but this may not be enough. So increase in safety nets or universal basic income and stimulus package uh, for resilience may be needed. Uh, the government may have more, more stimulus packages soon. So with that, I uh, end my presentation. Thank you very much. Mahindra, thank you very much. That was a remarkable precy of important changes that are happening in India. Thank you for sharing that. We'll come back to you in the next round in Q&A. But let me now move at this time to our next speaker, who is Fadel Diame. Uh, Fadel, just as I asked Mahendra in the case of India, could you briefly talk about the impact of COVID-19 in Africa and the overall response of African governments, private sector and farmers to COVID-19? Over to you, Fadel. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Jewel. And again, thank you to IFPRI to, for inviting us to this very important dialogue. I mean, just building on what uh, Joe said in his introductory remark, the pandemic really manifests itself differently because of the heterogeneity we have across countries, timing, etc. I think in the case of Africa, because of, we're talking about a continent, it's not one country, 55 countries spread across several cropping seasons. So 
to think about the impact of COVID, you have to realize that when it started in March, Southern Africa, countries like Mozambique and Malawi were in their harvesting season. At the same time, East Africa, Kenya, Rwanda, a part of Tanzania was, have already planted. West Africa was preparing to plant. So most government managed the tension of, on the one hand, trying to prevent the spread of the disease, which translated into lockdown, limiting mo mobility of people and groups in, in, to start with. And that has significant impact across the board. But obviously the impact differ depending on the cropping season that the country has. To go very fast, some of the impact was basically most of the countries had a lockdown. They closed borders in order to only avoid importation of the disease, but also out of a concern that they may lack food. Another type of measure that have been uh, that happened, another consequence is just the breakdown in the logistics system. Because you have to remember that we are talking about countries who are connected, who are part of a broader trading system and corridor. So when you have a lockdown, it significantly impacted the logistic and the operation of the value chain. Obviously, this affected directly the supply and demand of food and service. So the biggest fear when the crisis uh, materials in May that will have a combination of low production, low availability, and price increases, which is really a recipe for catastrophe. Now, fast forward, fast forward, I think one of the good things that happened is most African government realized that smallholder agriculture and agriculture was so important that it was treated as a special purpose sector therefore were provided exception to allow input to be moved to farmers to make sure that food are moved from excess region to deficit region and some significant policy will measure were taken once each country has made an assessment of the availability of food so i think that the high level message here is african government responded relatively quickly and five months, six months down the line, we don't have a major crisis. We do have some hunger spots, you know, due mainly to the dysfunction of the value chain. But in general, you don't have a crisis in the magnitude that we're thinking about. One final thing that happened that I want to highlight before I finish is some of these decisions we are done as part of a knee-jerk and uncoordinated policy. And the point here is there was no evidence, no data, no analytics to guide those policies. And I think that created probably a second wave of problem that we need to address moving forward. I thank you. Fadel, thank you very much for your remarks. Let me, uh, and I'm, I would like to come back to that in the next round, your last point about uh, evidence. But let me come now to Jemima. Jemima, continuing with the Africa theme, uh, could you briefly talk about some of the continental and country level responses directed to its smallholder farmers and entrepreneurs? Over to you, Jemima. 
Um, thank you, Rajul, and thank you so much for having me in the conversation. I think I'll just add on to what Fadel has been saying um, in terms of the country responses, but to also start off with some of the impacts um, that we've seen and that we've been tracking on, on smallholder farmers, especially because we know there have been some challenges, as Fadel and mentioned that there were disruptions in the supply of agricultural inputs and, and food products, reduced demand, um, especially because a lot of the, the, the informal workers in urban centers um, also lost their, their job. Um, some of the data that, that was coming through, for example, done by Precision Agriculture for Development was showing, um, they did some surveys of agro-input dealers that were showing that eight in 10 um, agro-dealers were reporting a decrease in the number of farmers that were actually purchasing um, inputs. And, and even those that um, still had some sales were reporting lower, lower sales compared to before the, the pandemic. But on the other hand, if you look at the, at the demand side, incomes were also, were also falling. So there's data from Nigeria, for example, showing that 70% um, of Nigerian households had seen their income fall. Uh, pre and, and during uh, compared to the pre-pandemic uh, pandemic period. So in a way you are dealing with both uh, supply and demand and demand um, issues and as Fadel said some of the, there was a lot of variations in some countries like Eastern Africa there was also a locust infestation in Southern Africa, they were just recovering from floods. So governments were not just dealing with, with, the, with the impact of the pandemic, but also impact of other vulnerabilities um, at the same time. Um, so we saw a lot of variations and we've seen a lot of variation in the way the governments have responded. So I'll talk about two uh, continental responses that I've seen that have really helped um, especially smallholder farmers recover. One was a, a decision by ministers of agriculture of, of the Africa Union member states that they would actually apply um, a couple of measures. One is adequate social safety nets, including cash, food, and other um, social protection measures to protect vulnerable groups, but also to ensure that farmers had adequate access to uh, to, to, to inputs. And we've seen a lot of countries actually allocating either budgets or external uh, or resources coming from external uh, sources um, to these issues. And also something Fadel said that was critically important that immediately after the pandemic, a lot of borders closed. But soon after that meeting, there was actually an agreement that countries would keep their borders uh, open in order to, to, to ensure flow of, um, flow of, uh, of commodities. And that in a way has helped a lot in terms of ensuring that Households have remained food secure, and um, and and inputs um, haven't been disrupted too much. The second continental response that I want to to talk about is the F, uh, the, the continent of free trade agreement because that just around before the pandemic started, there was a lot of conversations about accelerating or expediting. 
um, that, that, that agreement. And, and what we have seen so far is that because of those conversations, we haven't seen any, uh, you know, blanket uh, re responses such as import restrictions from any of the African countries. So although borders were closing, these were not policy responses that said, okay, we are not going to import or, 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 or allow exports from certain countries. And that has been very... Uh, very helpful. So there hasn't, although there were some ad hoc um, restrictions, this did not become a, a, a policy, um, a policy decision across the continent. So those two things, I think, um, have contributed a lot to the way different countries have responded. But accompanying these continental responses, of course, have been very country-specific responses. And I'll just talk about two from Kenya, where I'm currently sitting. There is a huge effort because of the disruption of movement between rural and urban areas. One of the decisions that, that the country made was that, of course, agriculture would be treated as one of the critical um, sectors, but also that um, the government started what they called a one million household urban food production system that has really helped to keep uh, especially the supplies of, of, of um, nutritious foods like, like vegetables in urban areas uh, consistent. The second thing they are doing is there was, um, uh, and this is my last point, that there was a, um, a loan from the World Bank of one billion US dollars and an explicit decision by the Kenya government that they would use 500 million USD of that loan to actually get input to smallholder farmers through a voucher system. So very, very specific responses that are geared towards addressing, making sure agriculture keeps going as well as making sure that urban households keep a reliable uh, supply of uh, nutritious foods. Yamaima, thank you very much for sharing both the continental responses and the specific response from one country, Kenya. Schengen, I come to you next. What lessons can China share uh, with other countries on how to cope with and respond to COVID? Over to you, Schengen. Yeah. Well, the COVID began to emerge in, in Wuhan in January. So the city was declared uh, a lockdown. Then immediately, we knew that something is going to happen on our food system. So a bunch of researchers uh, and the policy analysts formed an online group to discuss what can we do uh, to really avoid certain potential crisis. So indeed in, in February, February was the worst month here in China. So food prices went up by 8% compared to the pre-crisis pre level. The meat price particularly went up uh, quite a bit, uh, by 13%, seafood by probably 8%, and the vegetables by uh, 26%. So you can see uh, the food prices went up in February. Now, obviously, uh, there are many reasons because of the, uh, the lockdowns, uh, the, the poultry industry, the livestock sector has been severely disrupted because they cannot get the inputs, the laborers couldn't come to work, and they couldn't sell the products. Uh, the, the rural migrants, you know, 290 million rural migrants couldn't go back to their work. And they, many of them, 30% of them couldn't go back, lost their income, lost their jobs. And their wages also went down by 6%. Uh, 
then SMEs, many of them couldn't function, probably 80% of them were very much affected. So, but gradually, particularly after March, the situation began to change very quickly uh, for many reasons. One is the government created this so-called green channel policy to make sure that food and agriculture products have the priority uh, to go through, uh, to go through, to pass through the, the, uh, the roadblocks, uh, the checkpoints and so on, and, and the point to point deliveries. So that really helped. The e-delivery platforms, China had a pretty good network uh, using internet to deliver products from farmers to consumers. That has been scaled up, that has been further enhanced during, during the crisis. Now the government obviously also responded by providing financial support to, a smallholder to smallholders for their food production, to SME, SMEs and the rural migrants. So by, I think by probably April, food prices have come, have become normal. But in the meantime, uh, the rural migrants begin to go, go back to their work. So by June, probably majority of them have gone back to their work. Uh, SMEs, again, uh, by June, many of them, majority of them have uh, uh, resumed their normal operation. So I can see, um, yes, it was hard, but because of all these policies, I think China is head of uh, not so countries in con controlling the diseases and also to get our food system back to the normal. Going back to you, Rajo, thank you. Schengen, thank you very much. And I, I'm sure we'll come back in the next round. But um, um, before I come to the speakers for that next round, I'd like to remind all of you in the audience, you can submit your brief questions in the chat box. We will be coming to the Q&A session very soon. So look forward to your questions. Mahendra, let me come back to you. You mentioned in your response earlier that as part of the response to COVID-19, the Indian government has undertaken major reforms in agricultural marketing that were approved by the parliament in September, 2020. These reforms are considered very significant, like the deal licensing of industry that took place in 1991. Could you talk about what are some of the likely benefits to agriculture and value chains? Because you had mentioned the complete disruption of those. So over to you, Mahendra. Yep, thank you, Rajul. Uh, so as part of uh, response to COVID-19, the Indian government undertook uh, agriculture market reforms for better prices to farmers and improving uh, food systems and supply chains. So the parliament passed three, uh, these three farm bills, uh, which became law in September 2020. The first farm bill is on trade, which offers greater choice to farmers to sell their produce for better price discovery. Earlier, the farmers were selling to regulated markets called Agricultural Produce Marketing Committee or APMC, which, is, which was inefficient as it was dominated by the traders, middlemen, and also they imposed ta taxes. Now they can sell anywhere. Uh, the new bill gives freedom to sellers and buyers, and there are no taxes or licenses outside APMC system. The second bill relates to contract farming which has been legalized now. Farmers can sign what, uh, contracts with processors, aggregators, wholesalers at mutually agreed uh, crop prices. So what about smallholders? The small and marginal farmers, 86% uh, of, uh, of the total, can't compete with the big corporates in bargaining. So the farmer producer organizations can help the small farmers and the government is planning to set up 
10,000 farmer producer organizations across the country. The third bill is amending the outmoded Essential Commodities Act 1955, which was hurting the farmers by discouraging private investment in storage. The new bill removes stockholding limits on several commodities, except under uh, extraordinary circumstances, such as war or unnatural calamities. Is it the 1991 movement? There have been extreme reactions to the three, three form bills. Some say that you know, these are similar to the 1991 movement of economic reforms, while some others completely condemn these new bills. But of course, the truth lies somewhere in between the extreme views. Uh, there are, however, concerns and uncertainties on farm bills. Some sections of the farmers, particularly in Punjab and Haryana, have started protests. So there are two concerns. First, they think a minimum support price system called MSP, particularly for rice and wheat, may be removed. The second concern is that farmers will be at the mercy of corporations and retailers. Uh, another view is that the reforms may not work unless you have developed the private markets and infrastructure outside APMC. So to conclude, whether it is a 1991 movement or not, the farm bills passed by the parliament are in, in the right direction and farmers can have better prices and food and value chains can be strengthened. Central and state governments have to work because agriculture is state subject. They were to work closely in a federal setup for the success of these reforms. And more, more communication to the farmers on the farm bills is needed. Thank you very much. Mahindra, thank you very much. This is absolutely fascinating, a pivotal moment for India and for those of us in the rest of the world also. We'll come back to you in a, in a short while on that. But let me now move to Fadel. Fadel, at the, towards the end of your remarks, you mentioned the importance of data and analytics, or rather the lack of attention paid at that time. So let me ask you, what roles do AGRA and its PIATA partners, where PIATA stands for the Partnership for Inclusive Agricultural Transformation in Africa, what role do all of you play in the generation of data and analytics for the decisions to support countries' policies and programs? Over to you, Fadel. Thank you so much, uh, Rajul. Um, I think the COVID uh, pandemic has really surfaced the need for resilience from of our food and uh, health system. And at the basis of that is access to timely and useful information. I think what we're talking about here in Africa, most of our countries are net buyers of food. So as different countries are making the decision whether to close their border, open it, buy or sell, having reliable data on prices, on production, on commercial flow, on what is at stock is crucial. I think one of the first thing we Agra did through the highest, the, the leadership of Agra is to engage with the Minister of Agriculture and Permanent Secretary, just to get a sense of how they understand their own problem and how they are building their own response. Out of that dialogue, we realized that very few people, very few countries have more than three months of food reserve if things continue the way it was. Having that information is crucial for planning. So it made the issue of strategic food reserve central in our dialogue with many countries. Several countries reach out to AGRA and, and other organizations, IFPRI and others, to make sure that they have the tools, not only to assess the needs, the opportunities, 
so that they can make proper policy decision in terms of production, importation, etc. And I think this is what made the issue that my colleague Jamia was talking about of cross-border trade and, and regional continental free trade so important because when some countries have shortages, you have surpluses in other countries. So the importance of data at the country level, at the farm level, to be able to plan their own production process based on what the market needs is crucial. So I will, I will just highlight three key instruments that Agra and partners have worked on. The first one is around the strategic food reserve, working with some countries like Kenya and others to make sure that they bring proper reform to make sure that the decision to buy, sell, and manage those uh, reserves are based on evidence and market, not on political decision or administrative decision. Second element is having proper food balance sheet initiative, both at the country level, but also at regional level. Agra and partners work with the Rex, Comesa, uh, uh, ECOWAS, and Sahel Club, to make sure that they can build those instruments that enable the region to understand what the needs are and what are the opportunities to match the needs to the, to the surpluses and really play by the principle of cooperation and solidarity. The third example I would like to give is the food security monitor that Agra is working on. We support from our partner from the United Kingdom, the, the, the new office of uh, the, foreign, the Foreign Commonwealth uh, uh, Office, which is the old uh, uh, DFIT. We have set up a new initiative on regional food trade and resilience, which enables basically to work on with other partners to generate data, to be able to curate data in order to promote uh, predictability in regional food trade. An example in the case is Kenya did what we call a food security war room, which basically emphasized creating a partnership across all stakeholders, government, private sector, not only to collect data, to analyze it, but also to support decision-making. With our partners, we have also set up what we call a food trade, a regional food trade coalition, which bring together different stakeholders who would work to make sure that the condition are created for the private sector and government to work together to improve the efficiency of food production, distribution, and consumption across the continent. So the point here is to deal with a crisis, you need to know what you are dealing with. Understand the problem, understand the opportunities, and make informed decisions based on available data that is suitable for the different uh, stakeholders. It's around that that Agra is working with its theater partners in order to make sure that we strengthen the capacity of countries and private sector and farmers to access and use data in an appropriate way. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Jemima, let me come to you. Given the differential impacts of COVID-19 on women and girls, and uh, Mahendra also alluded to that earlier for India, how gender responsive have the responses of African governments been, or how can they be more gender responsive? Over to you, Jemima. Um, thank you, Raju. Uh, this is something that is really close to my heart because we know COVID-19 is not just having a differential impact on men, women, girls, and boys, 
but it's also actually exacerbating already existing gender inequalities. And uh, what we've seen is the current recovery efforts, uh, especially to support the agriculture sector, by and large, have remained uh, gender blind. And in a lot of cases, when they focused on women, they've made a lot of assumptions about what women's roles in the food system are. So, for example, focusing on, on, on the home gardens. But we know that evidence, uh, actually evidence shows that women are playing a pivotal role in all components of, of, of food security, whether it is production, distribution, utilization, and a lot of other activities that support agriculture development. And so living them out in the short and long-term recovery process is actually not an option and 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 governments actually need to to do better in terms of supporting women to build back uh, better and and my propositions actually are around two broad strategies that we must increase access to social protection, input markets and finance for women, but we must also enhance and amplify women's leadership um, in the sector to deal with the pandemic. Um, and I'll just talk about uh, four things, practical ones that I think governments can do. One is increasing access to markets for women and generally to smallholder farmers by providing short-term access, uh, whether it's through procurement uh, of COVID relief, and we've learned a lot. We, there's a lot to learn here from, um, from, from India, but in the longer term, making sure that we are actually developing markets and infrastructure that support, um, that support women, that we are encouraging shorter uh, value chains and crop diversification, because this has been shown to improve women's access to, to markets. The second is within the current programs to allocate inputs uh, to smallholder farmers. We know women are the majority smallholder farmers in the continent. Most governments are allocating funds, uh, whether through digital voucher systems or other mechanisms. I give an example of Kenya allocating about 500 US, uh, million USD loan from the World Bank. But a lot of these have no specific uh, targets um, for women. And yet we know that if we do a voucher system to allocate inputs with women's lower access to mobile phones, that we actually run the risk of leaving them out. So these are actually practical things that we can think about in terms of how do we get access um, to women farmers. The same thing, the third thing I want to say is, 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 is cash transfers. Because even within cash transfers, they've remained quite uh, gender blind, uh, although we know cash transfers targeted at women have potential to help them rebuild their businesses, secure their food security and that of their households. And finally, that we actually must have women. We've seen the, the broader COVID uh, response with women leaders, how effective it has been. And within the agriculture sector, we need to, be sh to make sure that women are at the table if we are discussing these recovery efforts and what works for them. Over to you, uh, Rajiv. Thank you, Jemima. Thank you very much. Shingen, let me come to you and let's look forward. Resilience to shocks is going to be even more important. Uh, how can China work with other countries to ensure that global food systems will be resilient to future shocks? Over to you, Shingen. Yeah, well, firstly, uh, we're quite, a, quite a pleased that the Chinese food system is quite a, 
resilient, uh, partly because of, of the good infrastructure even before COVID-19, you know, the, the, uh, the very sort of uh, uh, broader access to internet and also the community, community, you know, tend to work together here in China. So how can China work with other countries? Uh, I think there are many lessons that can be shared with, with other countries. One is obviously, uh, the, as I said, infrastructure investment. I think globally, particularly Africa, South Asia, and Latin America must continue to invest in rural infrastructure, including broadband, including access to internet. Uh, we know that when the people have good roads, good access to internet, they are very resilient to shocks, including COVID-19. Now, the, obviously, uh, the technologies, I think um, here again, the, in the future, the technologies should not just uh, pursue efficiency or high yielding. I think resilience must be mainstreamed, integrated in the future technology development or any farming practices and beyond. Then the, uh, I think social protection, this is something China actually could do more, could do better. I mean, this time the government does pro uh, have provided enough support to uh, the smallholders, women, children, rural migrants, and so on. Uh, I think the, the formal uh, system and also the integrated rural urban safety net because enough people are moving around between rural and urban areas. I think it's the same for many other countries. Integrated rural urban safety net will be so critical for India, for Africa, for China to make sure that you know the people who who are on the move, you know, seasonal migrants or or maybe even uh, urban migrants who do not have formal household registration in urban center will be able to enjoy uh, food, enjoy safety net. This will be very critical for building a resilient food system. Uh, finally, I do think the the uh, the next years um, the food summit, UN food summit, must take the resilience seriously and must take inclusion seriously. So inclusion and resilience must be very prominent in next year's Food System Summit. Going back to you. Thank you very much, Schengen. Thank you to all of you for your great remarks. We have several questions coming in. We have about 15 minutes or so for a quick round of Q&A uh, from our audience as, as well as myself. And let me pick up on that. Um, the first question I would like to direct to you, Mahendra. Mahendra, a number of our speakers have talked about the importance of safety nets, social protection. India has tremendous experience with that. Are there any key lessons that India, we, we could share from India's experience with safety nets at this time uh, with the rest of the world as they grapple with investing more in safety nets? Perhaps a minute or two on that. Thank you, Mahendra. Thank you, Rajul. Uh, yeah, India has uh, many safety nets in, uh, particularly in rural areas. Uh, the uh, we have uh, given uh, food uh, transfers and uh, cash transfers, and also the uh, employment guarantee scheme, that has become very a uh, safety net uh, during this period because many of the urban uh, migrants uh, they have gone back to rural areas, so for them employment is needed. So they have increased the allocation to uh, employment uh, guarantee scheme. And now we are also planning to have urban uh, employment guarantee scheme, first time in India. So that is another one. Uh, and also for women, uh, they are having directly cash transfers going to their accounts. Uh, so uh, some of these uh, measures like uh, the food transfers, cash transfers, employment guarantee schemes, I think they are uh, relatively working well 
although India is uh, constrained by fiscal deficit and uh, those kind of things. Thank you very much, Mahendra. I would like to direct the next question to Fadil. Uh, and um, Fadil, this is a combination set of questions. Um, Schengen mentioned the importance of resilience. This question comes in partly from Noor Hussain Said Yusuf, that Africa has lost a lot of economic advantages with the emergence of COVID-19 and the lockdown has intensified the food scarcity in the region and uh, including with problems like flooding in Sudan, locust swarms in Ethiopia. The question is, what preparations must we take to address those communities? And related to that, how do we strengthen the resilience of African smallholders to shocks? What policies do we need? And what technical innovations can we scale up? Combination question for you, Fadel, around strengthening resilience of African smallholders. And then Jemima, if you'd like to come in on that question similarly, I'll come to you after Fadel. Fadel, over to you. No, thank you very much. And, and I think that's uh, probably one of the key lessons. I mean, somebody say a crisis is probably the greatest opportunity to build back better. I, I think what the crisis have really uh, revealed is the need really to strengthen capacity across the board to adapt to innovate and to transform. And I think just because we don't have a lot of time, I, I want to say that this is central to the agenda of the African Union as part of the CADEP and the Malabo Declaration. So African countries and African regional uh, communities have been encouraged, have specific target on taking specific measures that strengthen the capacity really to deal with all these shocks. But to go very, very quickly, what it will require from where we are sitting is a several things. Firstly, at the level of the government, at the country level, a, re, uh, a significant political commitment to agriculture, especially to smallholder agriculture, which translate into a very clearly articulated vision, followed by resources, allocation of budget. Now, this is one of the first measures to reprioritize re agriculture as a central sector that employs the majority of our community, our people. But beyond just that commitment, you also need to have specific plan. And I think I want to flag, several countries are preparing what we call flagship, which really become priority program that takes into account some of the challenges that the food system perspective is, is bringing. Healthy diet, which compel you to go just before producing, but producing quality food in a sustainable way that is accessible and that provide employment opportunity to youth, women, and the marginalized community. For this to happen, you need significant public investment. As Schengen was talking about earlier, you need significant public investment in infrastructure research and all farmer facing, but you still mainly need a partnership with the private sector. I think what we have seen is win-win partnership are possible when you have good formula for sharing down the risk of providing to the most vulnerable. And concretely, that means building delivery system that are suited to the condition of smallholder farmers. A concrete example I will give you that my organization is what we call the village-based advisory service, who are farmers who live in the communities, who can help their fellow farmers take advantage of available market information, technologies, and be able to really uh, take advantage of the opportunities to produce more and access. 
So to, to go fast, it means a concerted effort. It's already on the agenda. I think there is an opportunity to strengthen it through greater cooperation, but it fundamentally requires leadership from African government. And I think the framework exists. The biannual review process is probably one of the greatest indications that the continent is committing itself to be accountable to key results and resilience, inclusivity, and healthy diet is probably one of the most important. Thank you. Just to conclude, I mean, we are excited that our leader is facilitating the next year's uh, food summit, uh, Dr. Agnes Kalibata. But we see this as an opportunity to have an open conversation of different pathway to leave nobody behind, to provide healthy diet in a sustainable way that provide opportunity to all. I think COVID is a preparation for the challenge. It will require that we strengthen our effort and do more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fadel. Jemima, would you like to add any remarks on that front of resilience in Africa? Um, quickly, but at the smallholder level, because I think we know even from a research perspective that uh, technologies to build resilience are there. We've been, the last 10 years, there's been a lot of investment in, for example, climate smart agriculture. Um, which is aimed at building farmers' resilience um, to, to climate change. But alongside this, we must also build stronger social institutions because resilience is not just an, an issue of technical availability of, of solutions, but farmers' own um, resilience in terms of social institutions that work. We must diversify our production, um, our production systems and actually ensure that farmers have the, the necessary tools and, and, and resources. One of the things, of course, that we should all worry about is the huge number of, of, of um, people in the continent that do not have access or cannot afford healthy, healthy diets. And so even as governments make investments, we need to be making investments in the right, um, in the right things and making sure that farmers are producing, that urban consumers are having having access to health. Thank you. Thank you, Jemima. Let me, I think we've lost Jemima's connection for a moment. Let me come then to Schengen Fan. Schengen, uh, you talked about some of the key lessons uh, from China. Let me ask you, from your experience with Africa and Asia, what questions should policymakers be asking what information should they be seeking? Um, and from the experience of China, what, what would you advise African and Asian governments to ask? Schengen, over to you. Yeah, well, there are many questions to, to ask, obviously. Uh, one is, okay, obviously, uh, this time the food system has been a victim of the, let's say, COVID. But to some extent, the food and agriculture have also contributed to that, you know, the, the wet market, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the zoonotic diseases. So how can we really make sure that on the one hand, we build a resilient food system to deal with the shocks? On the other hand, maybe equally important, how can we contribute to prevent the shocks like COVID-19? For example, okay, how can we, can we really improve the infra infrastructure of wet markets, you know, the sanitation, the hygiene, the better regulation. So make sure that 
all these sort of diseases hosted by animals will not be able to jump to the humans. So that's one important lesson. But secondly, how can we respect nature, keep some distance from nature? You know, if we continue to, let's say, to destroy our forestries, then obviously these natural habitats of animals are gone, then they will be closer to, to humans. We have learned a lot of lessons, including Ebola, even HIV AIDS, all these zoonotic diseases are the result of, to some extent, of the, it's a the food system expansion to the, to the native forestry, native land, and so on. So I think there's a huge lesson we needed to, we really need to bear in mind, including Africa. You know, I think China, probably Brazil, Indonesia, uh, they have already gone that stage, but Africa in particular, they still have a lot of that's a natural forestries, tropical forestries. How can we really protect them you know, to help us to sink the carbon there? And in the meantime, to make sure that all these animals you know, will be uh, in their own, let's say, uh, safe zones without, let's say, intruding human's life. So I think uh, this is the important lesson for everybody to think of, including Africa and South Asia. Thank you very much, Schengen. Um, Mahendra, I'd like to come back to you. You had mentioned uh, in your remarks uh, about uh, India's reforms and self-reliant India. Schengen talked about how China could contribute to build the resilience of the global food system to future shocks. What about India? How can India contribute to building resilience of the global food system? Any, uh, uh, not just being self-reliant, but being globally uh, um, uh, re uh, resilient. Uh, any thoughts on your side, Mahendra? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, one of the things is that uh, the uh, Indian government, uh, this package, uh, they called it self-reliant India, but also they want to compete with the outside world with, uh, you know, having more uh, industries, more, uh, uh, you know, food systems and uh, with the agriculture reforms and also the uh, safety nets uh, to how other countries can learn. Uh, the, and, uh, one thing uh, India can contribute is on the health, uh, you know, the vaccine, uh, drugs. Uh, India has a more, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry is very good. Uh, I mean, uh, so to Africa, other, other countries, they can help, uh, you know, this uh, with uh, uh, the health, uh, the food, uh, health and food systems. So those are some of the things uh, India can participate in uh, globally, uh, uh, global level. Yeah. Thank you, Mahendra. Um, Fadil, I'd like to come back to you. Uh, both uh, Mahendra and uh, Schengen had referred to the impact on migrants. This question comes in from Mark about what are the impacts in the refugee hosting areas and among refugees in sub-Saharan Africa? Um, do you have any thoughts and uh, comments on that front? Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I think that question is, is so important because we all understand how our African economic and social system are linked to processes of turnaround migration and support system from relatives who are in the country, in the region and abroad. And obviously, you know, the impact, you know, of the crisis has been less ability for some of the migrants to, to continue helping their communities. I, I think for, again, for me, it's part of the broader question is, what do we learn from this crisis? 
as we rebuild, how do we make sure that we restore more, a greater productive capacity, but taking into account issue of sustainability, not only to, 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 more, to you know, natural hazard, et cetera, but also to, the, to some of the shocks linked to the economic process itself. I think I take good note of all the investment or the point around building a bit more stronger, more robust economic system that is able to generate employment locally. We have so much opportunity to add value in the raw material that is produced in Africa. I think a concrete example of what is possible is what we're doing through the South-South Triangular Cooperation, by which we are leveraging on some of the knowledge and the breakthrough of India, China, and Brazil to really drive uh, economic transfer on the continent. So I think, yes, it is affected, but I think the opportunity is the migrant have all the ways of contributing through their network, their knowledge, in coming back and contributing to building back better. I think we are seeing it happen now. I think conducive policy, you know, will lead to that process where we can see transboundary cooperation, but also value chain operation that transcend countries. I think that provides opportunity for absorbing this extraordinary energy that the migrants uh, represent for this continent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fadel. Colleagues, we have so many different questions that have come in from around the world uh, that I do not know how we can address them in this one hour slot. But let me acknowledge and appreciate questions that have come in from Jaime Saldari, Saldariaga from Colombia, from Lydia Cabral with IDS in the UK, with Martin Fowler uh, in Uganda, uh, and uh, other colleagues. Um, at this time, I would like to come back to our speakers, and I would like to ask them uh, in their closing remarks if they would like to very briefly make their sort of a, a quick um, closing uh, statement, 20 seconds to 30 seconds, and I'll take them in the same speaking order they were in, which is Mahendra, followed by Fadel, Jemima, and Schengen. So with that, let me call on Mahendra for your message, and then we'll seamlessly transition to the rest of the speakers. Mahendra, over to you. Yeah, basically four things are needed. One is, of course, continue the safety nets uh, and also introduce urban employment guarantee scheme. The second is uh, you know, health infrastructure, particularly, you know, this gives an opportunity to improve health infrastructure. Third is, uh, as Schengen mentioned, the rural uh, infrastructure uh, is needed. Lastly, implement the agriculture reforms, uh, you know, if effectively. So for resilience and also uh, for transformation of agriculture and food systems. Thank you. Thank you, Mahendra. Fado? Okay. So uh, I think as part of our agenda as an organization, I mean, I work for Agra, which is a farmer center, African-led and partnership-driven organization. We see in this crisis the opportunity to pursue a transformation that will contribute to moving smallholder farming in Africa from a solitary struggle to a business that thrives. We believe for this to happen, the leadership has to come from government, who needs to be, who really put their own country on a path of self-transformation. Specifically with our partners, we see the opportunity to provide support to government, to regional economic organization, but also to the private sector, especially the hidden middle, 
the processor, the, the, the logistic company that are able to provide opportunity to unlock value for the majority of our smallholder farmers. We believe that this crisis is a wake-up call. It's never too late for this continent to regroup and recommit itself in realizing the huge potential that we have. But the responsibility lies on us, and now is the time to act. So I seize this opportunity to I look forward to the discussion around the food summit that will happen next year, which will enable us to come up with more concrete proposal around this so this important agenda. I thank you for the opportunity. Please go ahead, Jemima. Um, so my my takeaway is that um, building back better will require increased investment from governments in agriculture. We'll need to build stronger partnerships between farmers, smallholder, um, small and medium enterprises, private sector, and others. But all this has to be underpinned by making sure we are inclusive, that we are striving for equity, and that women's leadership in the recovery and response effort must be included. It is a huge opportunity for us. Let us not waste it. Thank you, Shengun. Yeah, we live in one world. So the diseases do not need a passport to go across countries. So we must work together. The UN has its role to coordinate different countries' action, including trade, investment, knowledge, and the data. Then the international organizations like World Life Funds, even CGIR have their jobs to do as well. Then equally important is the national governments, so their leadership by bringing people, communities, as well as different ministries together to tackle these challenges we have never seen before. The communities, as I said, communities play a huge role against shocks to build a resilience against any shocks. I think the most important is everybody, everybody's, it is everybody's responsibility to make positive changes. For example, our diets have to be sustainable, has to be nutritious, and our behavior, for example, social distancing, we got to respect others. And then finally, we have to have, we have to build a, a tradition culture to help each other, to help our neighbors, to help the people who really in need. So by all, by working together, we can truly build a resilient, maybe inclusive, as well as a more proper, prosperous world. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you to all our speakers, to you, Mahendra, Fadel, Jemima, Schengen. All of you were brilliant, focused, had innovative things to say, and were very disciplined with time. Thank you to the participants, and thank you to all of those who facilitated the side event of the World Food Prize 2020 Borlaug Dialogue. Please join IFPRI next week for two virtual policy seminars. October 20, the 2020 African Agricultural Trade Monitor will be launched. And on October 22, there will be a discussion on the political economy of COVID-19, impacts on agriculture and food policies. We hope to see you then. In the meantime, thank you everyone. Stay well and stay safe. Thank you. <laughs>